Hello and welcome to the Mind Springs podcast with me, Alastair Appleton. I hope you enjoy what you hear, and if you'd like to find out more about us, then visit mind-springs.org. And in, in some ways, this is what the the trying on, the practice of trying on your Buddha nature is. It's like, why not? The French philosopher Pascal made a famous wager. You know, this Pascal's wager. Which was basically, well, God might exist, or he may not exist. But let's say it was like a bet. And that if I bet that God does exist, and he does exist, ching. But if I bet that he doesn't exist, and he does exist, oh God. So it's like the wager you make is a choice that you make. Why not? And the, the, the crucial thing here, I think, is to realize that uh, that is a thing that your mind does. Your, your mind, not somebody else's mind. It's what your mind makes that choice. And in making that choice, things change. Like, like you said, you feel like you're in love. And uh, the world changes. Just as when you are actually in love, love, you know, when you're in romantic love, everything is wonderful. It doesn't matter with the weather, it's so romantic, this rain, it's so beautiful. <laughs> oh, God, that man's so angry, gosh, so charming. <laughs> just, oh, that got, just got splashed by someone driving their car, cut up by someone like that. That's so amazing. <laughs> I'm on the way to my beloved. <laughs> And that is, it's just the mind. Because six months later, when you'd be broken-hearted and you'd be dumped, <laughs> all of those things are terrible. But it's just the mind. And the mind is the boss, as Minja Rinpoche often says. The mind is the boss. We can work with our body, and of course the body is the gate, you know, they're all interwoven. You know, the, the mind and the brain and the nerves and these are all interwoven. But if we're just with the body, that's a, it's a dead end because it's literally a dead end because the body will end up dying. So working with the mind, with our consciousness, this is what makes us happy or sad, makes us meaningful or not meaningful, makes the world beautiful or not. Not having eyes, we all have eyes. Everybody has eyes, but it's how we see with the eyes. And this is, again, uh, quoting Minja Rinpoche, he says, the whole practice, everything that we do, is about changing perception. In a way, that's it. Changing perception. So that we're not perceiving the world I don't want to get into jargon, but like, there's, there's no self and other, everything is, is just beautiful, like you, when you're in love. And again, his, it's the title of his book, In Love with the World. And that, I imagine, I'm not one, but I imagine that's what it's like 
Uh, when you are fully, uh, fully realized Buddha, when you're completely convinced that your Buddha nature is real, is that you're just in love with the world. Everything is, everything is lovable. Like, like you said, when, when someone's in pain, when your beloved is in pain, you don't hate them, you love them. When your beloved is happy, you don't hate them, you, you're happy too. And I imagine that when you're fully established in your Buddha nature, that's what it's like being in the world. People suffering activates this great deluge of like, oh, I so want them to be well. So you want to scoop them up in your arms. Off. And when they're happy, you're like, yes, I'm happy too that you're happy. And I'm happy that I'm happy. And there's no difference between tending to your own suffering or someone else's suffering or the suffering of the world. Everything is a cause for great joy, weirdly. Even suffering becomes a, a source of a great heartfelt tenderness which is joyful at its core because it's a response it's a response to the world and also you know we're all in this particular culture we're all a bit death queasy yes. we, don't, we don't like death but I mean we're all going to die yeah. we should, you know, we've got to remember that yeah. we can pretend that we're not but we are all going to die yes. yeah. and this body is definitely going to become a corpse yeah. like I'm not going to be the only one that escapes that. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we're grown-ups. We can sort of take that on board. And so when someone dies, of course, you know, that's the end of their life and that's perhaps sad, but it's also joyous yeah. in some sense. What's, what's sad, what's really sad, I think, is when people are not alive when they're alive. Mm. And that includes us, of course. Mm. And when we're lost mm. in our thoughts, and particularly lost in our delusional thoughts about ourselves. I'm rubbish, I'm awful, everyone hates me. That's heartbreaking. Mm. It's heartbreaking that someone could spend their entire mm. life like that. It's one beautiful flash of light yeah. in the world, and, and that's what we do with our minds. Yeah. But then our culture, if you went around saying, I'm a Buddha, they'd slap you down. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a very good point, Mary, as always. You bring me back to the point. <laughs> the point is that it's just a habit of mind yeah. that we have been forced, almost, yeah. to forget that we're Buddhas. And this idea of Buddhas, I mean, you use this word Buddha, it's like all fancy Eastern words, and you might think of like a you know, a man all shiny, you know, sitting cross-legged under a tree. But where, where does the Buddha live? Where does Buddha energy live? It's in, our, it's in the mind. It's nowhere else. The Buddha is dead. The historical Buddha is dead. There are lots of people in the world who have realized they've woken up to the fact that they're all enlightened, male and female. They are around and it's wonderful to be with them and we should find those people and hang out with them. But it's not anywhere else. 
the Buddha is not going to be like appearing on top of the mountain or you know he might in your dreams but that's not important what's important is the Buddha is in is in your mind it's in all of our minds and the theory and I'm I'm not arrogant enough to say oh well you know the Dalai Lama doesn't know what he's talking about but you know these great Buddhist masters and also Christian masters and Islam you know, any spiritual person who's, who's realized this are there to remind us to wake up, to, rem- to remember. Yeah. It's not going to be anywhere else. It's not going to be outside of ourselves. It's going to be in our minds, our mind stream. Not in our thoughts, which are just like sun and the colors and smells. They're just more phenomena. It's in the consciousness. It's in that thing that we... We all have. We're all sitting here. You all have it. It's there right now. But if we are all Buddhas, then why don't we know it? Yeah. And, and also the very important caveat that most of us have is that we shouldn't be Buddhas or we're not allowed to be Buddhas. So let's think about this. Let's cut to the quick. Let's not get too bogged down in, in these terms. What makes, what creates suffering and what doesn't create suffering? Does feeling that we are never going to achieve enlightenment, that we, you know, that we're flawed and that we're you know, sinful, does that make us feel good? Does the possibility that we're actually already full of awakened consciousness, Christ consciousness, Buddha consciousness, and that we, we just need to clear the obscurations. Does that make us feel better? So the, so the, traditional, the traditional analogy is you have a Buddha statue, statue made of gold. And for historical reasons, it ends up being you know, knocked out of its place and it gets covered in crap. So it gets buried. And when you dig it up, it's just a big brown lump. So that is the, the classic example. It's like, it doesn't look like a Buddha. It doesn't smell like a Buddha. <laughs> it doesn't taste like a Buddha. But actually, if you gave it a wash, it is a Buddha. And, and I think something similar is going on with our consciousness. We, we constantly tell ourselves that we're not any good. I mean, most of us do. Some of us are. Some of us tell us that, some of some go the other way, say, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm amazing, I'm brilliant, and everyone else is crap. But, you know, we're constantly telling stories about ourselves. Some stories make us feel awful. And some stories make us do bad things to other people. Some stories are more aligned, perhaps, with reality, and therefore don't grate as much, don't cause as much friction. And I suppose what the... The theory, and it's just a theory, and I think it's really great that you flag up these, these, these issues. The theory is that the story that we are separate, independent, solid beings, and that we're you know, evil, for example, or sinful, or flawed, is heavy. It's heavy. It kind of traps us and it makes us defensive and feel embattled and separate. Whereas the story that we are actually multiple and impermanent and flexible 
and constantly uh, responding to the world is, feels easier. And that, that story is more in the line with uh, what they call the Dharma, so the Buddhist story. And the other story, well, is actually just historically perhaps Western, perhaps capitalist, I don't know where it comes from, but it's very common. But the key, and this is where I think the, you know, Buddhism is a, something that I ascribe to, the key acid test is, does it make us suffer more? Does it make the people around us suffer more? Is it nice to be around someone who is convinced that they're awful and everything they do is dreadful and are constantly worrying? No, but I live like <laughs> yeah, no, but we all live like that. Yeah, we all live like that. And this is the, this is the kind of liberation of, of what Buddhism is suggesting. It's like we don't have to live like that. And actually, much more importantly, other people will really rejoice if you don't live like that. So it's not arrogant no. to want to be free. You're actually doing the world a favor. Because people love to be around free people. People love to hang around the Dalai Lama. I know I keep on wheeling him out. But <laughs> it's something we can, someone we can all you know, relate to. It feels good to be around him. And it's very easy when, we're, you know, we're, when we've been studying Buddhism for a long time, we've been meditating for a long time to talk about all these concepts, but what it really comes down to is what is our experience, our phenomenological experience of being in the world? Is it full of suffering and closeness and heaviness and pain? Or is it open and free and bright and useful, helpful, inspiring? And, and that's the sort of, that's the edge that we kind of work on. And, and, it, and I do have become more and more convinced that it comes down to what we do with our minds. What is our view of our own mind? And you're, you're right, it's not that we're saying, oh, I am Jesus, because that is, as you say, that ends, that ends you up in the loony bin. But I think most Christians, I don't know, well, I think Jesus would say that everybody, the kingdom of God is within. Yeah. It's not out there. It's not like a place with fluffy clouds and angels with harps. Heaven, or paradise, is inside your mind. I think I, I used to work with that, that koan. It's like, what, what would make this right now, this room, paradise? Knowledge of the fact that we all remember. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's not going to be—it's not going to be a different place. It's like when you're out in the, on the island; it's not going to get more beautiful than that. <laughs> you know, paradise is not going to just be a bigger mountain or more beautiful sea. It's going to be like that, but it's not going to be any. The stuff is not going to be different. It's going to be your mind that's mm. different. And what is it that makes it better? It's the mind. Yeah. There's a beautiful um, uh, example which I wheel out a lot from Shantideva's Life of the Bodhisattva, which is, you now you can live in a world, like many Tibetans do, where it's very rocky and the paths are full of stones and flints and thorns 
and you can think, okay, right, we, I need to make the world better. So I'm going to cover all the roads in Tibet with leather. Every single road, every mountain, every path, I'm going to buy all the leather and kill all the animals that make leather and, and carpet the entire world with the leather. That's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is to make yourself some shoes. And that, that is, in essence, what we're dealing with here is we can change, we can try and change the, the whole world so there are no annoying people and there are no bad things going on and it's never cold, it's not, you know, it's the right temperature, there's enough this, enough that, you know. Or we can change our minds. We can free our minds. And, and the other one is impossible. It's exhausting. And that's what we're doing all the time with our minds. Exhausting ourselves, trying to change everything to make it perfect for us. But actually, it's already perfect if we changed our minds and had a mind like a Buddha's. So we have Buddha consciousness. We, we experience the world. We have the eyes and ears and nose and heart and mind of a Buddha. And not only that, we recognize that everybody else has that too. And not just the people, the robins and the otters and the slugs. Can I ask here, has anyone here um, taken what they call the bodhisattva vow? Mm. That's a handful of people, yeah. So in, in, in Buddhism there's this thing called the bodhisattva vow, which is, comes from the Mahayana tradition, which is uh, a vow that you take when you become a Mahayana Buddhist as opposed to a Hinayana Buddhist and which is essentially saying I'm not going to rest until all the beings in the world no longer suffer so to every single person who's afflicted by their mind or by physical violence or by the situations they're in so all suffering is when all suffering is finished then I'm released from my vow this is, an, of course, an impossible task. But, when I, when I took my Bodhisattva vow, I was struck to tears. I was so uh, struck by it. But a line in the, uh, the vow which says, Today, my life has become meaningful. I have joined the family of the Buddhas. And this is a... A beautiful, beautiful line. And the more I think about it, the more profound it is. Because that vow to think about others, care for others, look after others, liberate others, is actually the ground for enormous happiness. And the fact that the task will never be finished is a ground for infinite happiness. <laughs> because we are in this amazing group of beings that have recognized that worrying about yourself is endless. Just as endless as liberating all beings. Why is it endless? Because the self doesn't actually exist. 
you can try and soothe the self for an infinite amount of time. You will never soothe the self because the self doesn't exist. What does that mean? It means that the, the, the thing that we are trying to get better, to soothe, to make happy, isn't actually a thing. It doesn't actually exist. We will never get to the point where we're like, oh yeah, now I'm, now I'm completely <coughs> This thing that we're constantly trying to tend doesn't actually exist. So we, it can't be made happy because it doesn't exist. Other people, however, they're full of energy. There is so much more otherness in the world than there is self. And so we can plug ourselves into the otherness of the world with almost infinite reward. So it's not a burden, the Bodhisattva vow, it's this incredible source of energy. But it does require us to free ourselves. You can't just sit around doing the same thing, like groobling away, letting your mind do the same thing. We do have to step up to the plate. And that's kind of what you're all here to do. I don't know if you've signed up for that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Which is self-soothing. Yeah. So we've moved on from that. <laughs> it's not that we... Of course we self-soothe, and of course it's important to look after ourselves. I'm not suggesting that's not the case. But we shouldn't make that our sole purpose in life. Simply because it will never, ever get to the... You'll never get to the end of that task. It's an uncompletable task. Sisyphus. It is Sisyphusian. The, the world does exist. And you obviously exist too. But it's the idea, the project of yourself doesn't exist. You and your body and your family and your, your loves and your griefs, of course they exist. We all exist. But just this Alistair that's going to be super happy all the time mm -hmm. at some point in the future doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that keeps us locked in this boring cycle of self-soothing. And it is dull. Super dull. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And being plugged into otherness is super exciting. You only need to go for a walk along the path to the lighthouse to see how much otherness there is in the world and how little self there is. And so when we plug into otherness, it's beautiful. And that, I would suggest, is the easiest path to what we call compassion. Not trying to be a good person, not or being really, really super good so that we get gold stars when we get to Buddhist heaven. But actually, the joy of being with others, and with ourselves, of course, but you know, we're quite small compared to the rest of the world. You know, we, we are sitting here and we may have our problems, and we may have our issues, 
But then there are 25 other people who are all, they all have their own universe. And, um, sorry, I've waffled on, but um, what I'd like us to do in these, these coming days is to just entertain, even if it's just for a moment, entertain the possibility that we are actually full, full to the brim of Buddha awareness, Buddha consciousness, which is in its very essence loving, it's in love with everything. And if that is the case, if that theory might be correct, and if, you know, all these very wise people are not just kidding us, then where is it? What does it feel like? How can I stabilize that realization? And, as if that wasn't enough, <laughs> what does that mean for everybody else around me? What does it mean for the people I meet? The people here on this six, these six days, we're here together. Each person is an opportunity for you to recognize, okay, this is how a Buddha reacts to another Buddha. Cool. And of course it's not that straightforward, I'm being a little facile, because we are mired in the mud that Kay was talking about, the mud around the Buddha. And we also have to work with that. But that's doable. People have done it. Many, many people have done it. And we can be inspired by them. Again, as you walk along the path, you'll see all the beautiful uh, painted carvings. Those are all people who've done it. Got to the end of the path. I suppose the, what I'm saying is that it, it's joyous. Yes. You know, often you come up, we do these compassion retreats and everyone gets super sad. <coughs> and that's fine. It's fine to be super sad. But at heart, when you look at these, these people who have stabilized that realization, they're all very happy. They're full of energy. Indra Rinpoche, he came off the flight to Brazil, I think he'd been on six days in Brazil, on transatlantic flight, and all his entourage were literally crawling, crawling off the plane, and he was like, okay, let's go for a walk. So much energy. Because it's not all bogged down in all the stuff we usually bog ourselves down in. There are, there are a hundred billion different ways of wiping the mud off the Buddha. But remembering that the Buddha is there is kind of central to the whole project. You know, we all have different kinds of mud, and like some really thick mud, or just mud on one side, or in mud at the top, not at the bottom. You know. Smelly mud, nice mud, very old mud, very new mud. There are hundreds of different enlightened ways of getting that off. Not all of them have to be Buddhist. You know, there are, all of these religions are pointing, I think, to the same thing. Unveiling, getting the mud off the Krishna consciousness or the Christ consciousness or the Buddha consciousness. And we all find our way. But it's really useful to have the view in mind, that cleaning off the mud is a good thing, and that the Buddha is there, or the Christ consciousness is there, 
because otherwise we can spend a lot of time going down into like wormholes. But remembering that we are already radiantly compassionate and connected and loving without any effort, it's spontaneous, is a really good remembrance. <laughs> because it's the forgettery of that that is, I believe, at the root of everything else. Good. Okay, so well, let's have a cup of tea. So we'll come back at half past 11. But please do, uh, we're still in silence, so please do let this percolate. And, yeah, remember you're, if I want to say remember you're a womble. (laughs) 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 So you might not know, if you didn't grow up in England, you might not know the Wombles was was a TV show. And the Wombles were, the, actually they're Bodhisattvas. The Wombles were these wonderful characters who picked up all the things that humans left behind on Wimbledon Common and made good things from them. They were these furry little creatures. And the song was called Remember You're a Womble. <laughs> don't remember you're a Wombles. Remember you're a Buddha. But also remember that everyone else in the tea room, they are also Buddhas. <laughs> Thank you for listening and please do join us again for more podcasts from MindSprings. You can find out more about us and our work at mind-springs.org. That's mind-springs.org.